Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Teaching Startups to Fish, Sales, Scale, and Startups. I hope you all had an awesome weekend and are prepping for an amazing week. I'm having a bit of a short week this week. I'm going on a fishing trip with some family out in country Victoria. So I thought I'd punch out this podcast before we actually make that happen and collect all the feedback over the weekend. And when I get back on Monday, I can answer all the comments and get back to any questions that you guys have. For this episode, I'm very excited to bring on John Deans as JD from Sales Director Central. JD has a wealth of experience working with sales directors, coaching salespeople, and helping companies hit those massive revenue targets. So I'm really excited to have you on. JD, welcome to the pod. Myadon, it is uh, awesome to be here. I love that the thing is called teaching startups to fish and you're going fishing. There's something There's something quite um, funky about that. That's, that's hilarious. You know what? It's funny because last time I did a podcast, I was also going fishing that weekend. So I think there's a bit of a pattern developing here, definitely. Yeah. There you go. Mate, let's start off with a bit of an intro. You know, Tell us who JD is, what have you done in the world of sales? Give us a bit of a background. Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Love talking about sales stuff, as you know. I spent 20 years in the IT industry, super lucky to have the career I had, sold a whole bunch of stuff, mostly accounting software. And I was talking to someone the other day about selling accounting software from low end of the market up to the higher end of the market. And once you do that for a little bit of time, it's kind of like having your own MBA. And I'm not trying to mitigate what an MBA is all about in any way, right? But what you will have done, you'll have sold to 20 to 30 different industries. You'll have had multiple C-level conversations with people in industries that you're not an expert in. And you've actually got to present and, and talk to them about things that are going to impact or create big differences in their in their organization or in their industry. So did that for 20 years, 18 years ago. I decided that I was doing the same thing in most businesses. I was setting it. I, I spent as much time selling as actually setting structures and processes up. And so 18 years ago, I started doing consulting. So I get paid to speak and um, work with large corporate sales teams. And in the last three years, three and a bit years, we founded a business called Sales Director Central. And the focus on that business is tech companies between $1 and $20 million that want to scale. We come in as sales director for a day a month and we help run the sales function. We put a process in. One of the things that I discovered along with my co-founder when we started really going through this is that most organisations, there's a variety of things, what we call the six pillars of peak performing teams. Organisations, if they don't have the six pillars, then they're not selling as effectively as they can. With the six pillars, we guarantee that you can double your return on investment. With the six pillars, you'll sell more straight out. That is amazing. That is amazing. And I mean, it's such a huge difference between zero to 1 million, 1 to 10, and 10 to 20. So I'm a little bit curious to understand, you know, what are some of the, focusing on the zero to 1 million, what are some of the things that you just walk into an organization and, and you look at what they're doing and you're just like, oh, here are the quick wins that you guys can just implement immediately just to start bringing that revenue in? Because I do a lot of work with startups myself and coaching startups through the sales process and getting, getting those first five or 10 customers in. So I'd be really, really keen to hear what you do. We typically work at the million dollar mark, but what I certainly from the zero to one million and then the one to 10, most founders have gone and, and done a couple of really super cool things. They've gone and seen a gap in the marketplace. They've identified it. They've researched it. They've gone and developed an amazing product or products to solve that particular problem. So you've got to give it to all the founders that have not only seen the gap in the marketplace, developed a product to then facilitate that, and they've also then been able to sell it. And so I guess this brings me to the first thing is there's a movie, Field of Dreams, with Kevin Costner, and in the Field of Dreams, Kevin builds a, a baseball pitch in the middle of the, of the field. Build it, they will come. And we've, we've all kind of heard that. But one of the biggest mistakes is they want to tell everyone about their product. They want to show everyone the product, hey, we've got this amazing product. We've been able to sell 100, $500,000, $200,000, $100,000, $1 million worth of it. All I need now to do is get more people to know more about my product because if they know about it, they'll buy it. And I guess the first thing is we don't see that as being true. 
Most people sell to their friends, family and fools and then they kind of look for the next bit of how do you scale and grow the thing. So the first thing is no one wants to buy your product. That's right. And that rings so true, especially on LinkedIn, right? Like every, every day you log on LinkedIn and you get 50 inboxes and people just regurgitate a script telling you all the different things their product can do, hoping that someone will find it interesting and be like, hey, let's have a meeting. So I think with founders, right, a lot of them, majority of the time, they're technical. They're very intelligent people that have built a product, that have built a system. But then when it comes to sales skills, they usually lack in those areas. And sales is probably one of the most uneducated industries in the world, if not the most. And it's also one of the most important ones, right? So, But surprisingly, it's one of those things that always gets put on the back burner. So what sort of advice could you give founders thinking about or being at that stage of, hey, this might actually be ready to go out into the market, I should start selling it. So like, what are some of the first, very first steps, you know, before a script, before anything else, what, what are some of the first things that they should start thinking about? So one of the things that I talk about when I get to present to, to startups and scale-ups is stop talking about your product because no one cares. Like we, we just kind of touched on that a minute ago. No one actually wants to buy your product. doesn't matter what it is. doesn't matter how amazing it is. What they do want to do is solve a problem. So one of the things we mentor founders on is stop talking about your product, start talking about your passion because your passion talks to the problem in the marketplace, it talks to the gap, and the problem in the gap in the marketplace is what your prospect is wanting to solve. So if you can talk more about the problem, the cause and the, and the impact of that, for example, when we work with founders, invariably we work with founders that have hired and fired salespeople. And there's three reasons why people have hired and fired salespeople invariably in the companies we work with. The first is they looked in the wrong place for the wrong thing and then they've managed them badly. Looked in the wrong place, any job board, because salespeople, all I need is to find is a salesperson because I've made this amazing product. So they go to any job board and look for sales. Because sales isn't their domain expertise, they just look for anyone who, who interviews well. And we talked about that just before the podcast. They interview well, but they can't sell. They go and tell everyone about it. So the answer is do as many demos as you possibly can. We did work with one organisation that did over 70 presentations in one year for no deals. It's a, wow. lot, it's a, it's a lot of meetings and conversations and follow-ups and there's a lot of effort and energy in that. Sure, they developed a pipeline. So the second thing is they want to do demos to everyone. The third thing is that they're left to fail because sales isn't the domain expertise of the founder this individual is kind of left to their own devices. And when they're in their own devices, they try and copy and replicate what the founder can do, which becomes a feature function more. And again, that's not how to sell well. So the first thing is stop talking about your product, start talking about your passion. The second thing is most, if you think about most corporates and most companies and the buying cycle, Hugh McFarlane wrote a book called the leaky funnel. In it, he identified the buying cycle. So if your client is really early in that cycle, how do you add value to that? What are some of the things that they can do or think about that are going to help where they're at in their cycle? They not, may not be buying yet. They may not even be evaluating, but they're in that process. How do you add value to what they're doing so that someone's going to look at you and say, hey, you, this is an organisation, you get us because you understand exactly what our problems are, right? So along with don't talk about your product, talk about your passion, 99% of websites from founders talk about what are the two things that websites from founders talk about? Who are we? What do we do? The product that we've just created because no one's, you know, it's the best thing since sliced bread and this, is, and this is awards we've won or this is whatever it is, right? And again, people don't want to buy your product. So if you can talk to the problem statements, here are the problems and here's why you have that problem. You don't need to be an expert on my industry, but if you can solve my problem better than anyone else, I'm more likely to give you some more airtime. You're more likely to be a thought leader and I'm more likely to get more traction because that's going to help this person sell it internally. Mm. You know, we've talked about this before, but in most corporates, the last mile is when you've been told by someone, hey, Maladam, we're going to go with you. You're in good shape. We're going to put you forward and recommend you. 20, 30 years ago, I used to think I was, yeah, I'm in good, you know, I used to go and tell the boss, hey, we're being recommended. You know, it's going to come through this month, maybe next month in terms of procurement, but we're in good shape. 
in at Optus, 80% of the business cases that were written internally got rejected because it didn't meet the internal rate of return, what they call the hurdle rate. Hmm. So increasingly when you're talking to these organisations, when you're talking about your product and your price, that's actually not going to get the thing internally sold. What is going to get the thing internally sold is writing a business case or understanding the internal metrics. So how is this person going to get the approvals to make sure this project gets the priority for the business on top of all the other things that are going on currently within that organisation. And circling back, so I've got two questions there. So circling back at the beginning um, when you were talking about people hiring sales salespeople once they've started a company, do you believe that founders are able to hire salespeople to get their first few sales through the door? Or do you believe that founders should be the ones selling to the first few clients and actually understanding the process before hiring account executives or salespeople? And two, a bit of a different question is on that business case topic, a lot of organizations, in my experience, sometimes are a little bit cagey about that process of allowing vendors in to help them with that with yep. that business case. So what are some tips or, or how should people approach that situation of, you know, hey, let me help you write that business case? Yeah, okay. Well, first thing is don't ask him, can we help you write the business case? But anyway, I'll, I'll, let me deal with the first one first. With regards to hiring a salesperson, there needs to be some reality. Most, a lot of organisations work run on a shoestring, right? They're fundamentally in paying the development of the product. They're paying to get the product to marketplace based on whatever resources they have immediate access to without going and getting investor. We spend a lot of time talking to investors. And one of the things that we hear from investors is, I don't care that Fred, Mary, Tom, the founder, can sell it. That's not a scalable business because I'm only limited by whatever the founder can actually get done. So, yes, the founder does need to go and sell the thing themselves to make sure this is a sellable commodity, that there's a potential addressable market, all the other things that, that founders need to go and do. Once they've got that, they need to think very seriously about what are the skills, attributes, and talents from a salesperson that doesn't share my passion that's going to enable me to scale and grow. Because, again, most founders will hire someone in sales it's not something, it's not their natural bent. So they just go and find someone who's sold for the last 20 years. And if I paid them 100 grand, 120 grand, whatever the number is, they should be able to go and do it. So, yes, the founder needs to sell it. They need to be really then clear. And I get this is a hard thing. If you're a technical founder, this can be a hard thing. What are the, the attributes and skills of the, the salesperson? So, let me give you a couple of examples. If you're hiring a salesperson, probably getting off the question, if you're hiring a salesperson and they've spent the last four opportunities spending 12 or 18 months in their roles and they're selling to enterprise, they probably haven't sold much, right? Because it takes you three to six months to get up to speed, takes you another six months to start developing your pipeline. If you leave them within the next six months, you really haven't had a large window of being effective in sales. And that's where you see a big drop-off as well. Usually on resumes, you see about one and a half years around there, maybe a little bit earlier. That's when salespeople start dropping off. The, the average tenure as a salesperson, do you know what it is, the average tenure of a salesperson? No. 15 months. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. 15 months is the average tenure of a salesperson. You're not getting a return. I mean, the, the, a salesperson, we help organizations sell a complex product to an infrequent buyer, right? Complex product. Typically, SaaS style organization, SaaS style product, and an infrequent buyer. Most infrequent buyers run a cost center, IT, finance, HR, legal, marketing. They're all cost centers within organizations. So they all measure, they all measure performance based on how much money they can save. So, just for people listening, what is an infrequent buyer? An infrequent buyer is someone who just doesn't buy often. It's not part of their day to day thing. Even procurement, we've helped a couple of organisations sell procurement to the procurement function. Even procurement teams, they're used to buying toilet paper and pens. They're not used to buying IT systems that run their entire business. So it's, a, it's an individual who doesn't buy all the time and so they're not used to all of the internal mechanisms to get approval to get the thing sold. So it's not all about the person selling. It's also about the people buying and working with them to actually get to the final close. In fact, we, you, know, we you talked about what are the things you should do. The first is don't consider yourself a salesperson. Think if you're helping someone buy, then that's a complete paradigm shift because the question is then what do you need, what do you need to get this project approved? 
which is a lot better way at coming at the business case question, right? Can I help you write a business case? I'm going to tell you in, in my 40 years of experience is going to get met with a no <laughs> because two reasons. Either I don't really know what that process is or I don't want to share it with you because that's kind of some of the internal metrics and, and mechanics that I don't want to share with you. How do you add value to that exercise is the real question. I was very lucky. I spoke to him last week. Of the top 10 salespeople I've met in my entire life, I've worked with four of them. I'm super lucky. This guy is absolutely one of the top reps that I've, I've ever met in my entire life. He is very, very, very good at understanding. Can you show me an old business case that you've got approved? Have you got approval for something either of this value or like this previously in the last three or four years, depending upon the tenure of the individual? So he was very good at starting to position. Another sales rep who was the number one sales guy worldwide for a product that's now bought by Workday. Hugh would say to people, they would sell to the finance functions. He would say to a head of finance or, or, or the finance person he was talking to, maybe not the head, we typically get to the final two or three. So if you can just park that for two seconds, let's assume we get to the final two or three. My biggest challenge is how do you get this thing approved internal? And so we then go in, can you show me an old business case you've got approved? Can you show me some of the processes or find someone who's going to help you navigate how to get this project approved? Because this then becomes, how do I help you get this project happening rather than how do I help you buy me? Mm. Yeah, it's completely different, right? Like in one situation, you're saying, you know, I need to sell this thing. And in the other situation, you're like, okay, so how do I help you make that purchase decision and give you the most value? Right. And, it, and it's, there's another interesting component part here, right? I did a post recently said templates are killing your business. Templates are created to try and save time. But what they do is they also create a whole bunch of lazy behaviour. And what happens with templates is you cut and paste the bulk of the template. You then put a little bit about the company, a little bit about the price in the, in the document. The challenge is the infrequent buyer can't use that document to get an internal sale. So the question is, and so I ask this question sometimes of groups, if someone asks you for a proposal, have you ever said to them, what do you need me to put in the document to get this approved? Everyone's probably looking at you with eyes wide open, like, what are you talking about? Right, because the only, the only reason you write a proposal, I mean, let me tell you the answer rather than ask the question. The only reason you write a proposal is to get your stuff done, right? It's for them to assist them in getting a, an internal approval, get a buying decision. So if that is true, kill your template because it's just killing you. Mm. Start understanding what are the things that you need to do in, in terms of getting this approved. Think about your proposal if from a business case. Can your client rubber stamp the document you've sent them and then just send it down the line to get approval? Because the answer is no, then we're not spending enough time understanding how to help them get that, that internal sale or what we call last mile. And going a little bit tactical here, right? Like we're talking about, you know, templates and I'm thinking about sales processes now. And what a lot of people will have is, you know, lead comes in and then they have that first meeting, they present their product and then, you know, they stuck in that, they get stuck in that endless follow-up loop. Hey, you know, what's the next steps? I'm just checking in, checking in. So if you're not using templates, can you give us a little bit of an overview of what a sales process should look like? You know, obviously every company is going to be different, but a bit of, you know, a broad brushstroke on what you should do in the first meeting and then, you know, following on from that, how do you accelerate the deal and keep pushing it along? An interesting couple of talk points from that question. I did some work with a company five or six years ago and they had in the deal reviews that they were doing, these guys sell a complex product to an infrequent buyer. They sell to large corporates in kind of the document management space. And they had this slide in their deal review pieces, which said there's seven buying cycles and seven stages in the sales cycle. And invariably, they'd say the customers at stage two, defining requirements, we're at stage four about to make a proposal. I'm like, how can that be out of alignment, right? So if you take that and then escalate it, scale it, your CRM should be not stages in what you've done but stages in where the customer is at. Mm -hmm. So if you change, you know, I've got a client last week, we've restructured their entire CRM to reflect quantifiable outcomes that the customer has agreed. And they now are the stages of where the customer is up to in their buying cycle. 
And the biggest challenge in forecasting, we see this all the time, the biggest challenge in forecasting is we forecast when we, the sale is going to be made, the customer <laughs> buys when they're ready, right? So that, that the gap is our lack of knowledge in terms of all the processes that they need to do to make a buying decision. And I'll come back. There's a comment I just got reminded of when writing proposals. There's a colleague of mine that says, when he talks about proposals, let me document my incompetency and send it to you. <laughs> Love that. Let me document my incompetency because I don't need to know too much, right? Think about what you really know about a customer. I've done this with a number of organisations. In your next sales meeting, if there's not just yourself and the sales team, in your next sales meeting, ask someone to talk about the customer for as long as they can. They can't talk about anything they've quoted, any current proposal or any project they're involved with. Right? What we see is too many salespeople know what and how much. Right? They know all the stuff that they've written in the document. What they don't know is who's going to buy, when are they going to buy, and why are they going to buy. And that's the shift. So that's more of a... It's going from a sales-focused, what and how much, to a buying-focused, when, who, and why. What you just said there reminded me, like, you know, I dare to have that meeting and, and, you know, talk about what, just talk about the customer. And that reminded me of when you told me the other day about your book coming out, I Dare You. So tell me a little bit about that and what, like, what sparked that idea and, you know, what's the whole concept behind the book? It's actually a post I'm contemplating currently. I think I'll, I'll do it in the next couple of weeks. Far too many people spend far too long, certainly in discovery calls, talking about themselves. This is our product, this is our capability. I got asked the other day by a guy who's got some amazing product that he's just created, and he says, what do I do when the customer says, can you show me the software? And it came up with two questions. One is, what's the only thing we measure in sales? 99% of people are going to say revenue, and the answer is not revenue. The answer is time. Time. Explain that a little bit. You spend more time in front of people that have to buy, you'll make your sales target. If you spend more time in people who like your stuff, like your product, but don't buy, you won't make your number. Mm. So if time is the thing we're measuring, not revenue, because I can sell $10 million if you give me 10 years to do it. If you want me to do $10 million this year, that's a different paradigm. If I've now got $10 million to sell in this next 12 months, I can only talk to organisations, let's say it's a half million, I can only talk to 20 to 30 organisations that have to make a buying decision. How do you know they've got to make a buying decision? Well, by understanding more of the criteria of how they're going to buy a critical event, burning platform, business risk, business issues, all those things. So in the demo, when the guy says, can we have a look, someone says, can I have a look at your software? My answer to the question is, if you don't understand enough about whether they're going to make a buying decision or not, you need to, to politely excuse yourself and dive more into, I really need to understand a little bit more about what you do before I can, so I can show you a, the software, to do a presentation that's more meaningful to you about exactly what you want. Mm -hmm. So the notion of I dare you came about because too many salespeople spend too long talking about themselves in the first meeting. And so my proposition is, or my challenge is, I dare you not to talk about your company and your product at all in the first sales call. And it's interesting how you have to highlight that. Highlight that. And what fascinates me is the word discovery is in the discovery call, right? So you should be discovering more about the customer, but a lot of people aren't doing that. And I don't know what it comes down to. I think you know a lot of people that get tasked with a discovery call in your standard predictable revenue model, they're usually junior, right? You get your BDRs or your SDRs to go in and it takes a high level of business acumen to actually have those conversations with customers. But one thing I wanted to ask was, you know, during that discovery stage, what are some of the ways that people can have those meaningful conversations and build rapport with a customer and really get them to think differently about the issues that they're facing? Right. Yeah, I love this question. We believe that you can differentiate yourself based on the questions you ask, not based on your product. So if you think about your sales process, how do you make your sales process so unique and so beneficial to the customer that they want to engage you, that after two or three meetings, the answer is whatever you're doing, that's what I want to do because you've helped me. So one of the ideas or concepts we have around that is if you can change the way I think about my problem as a prospect, not about your product, not about how you solve it, not about the things, not about your case studies, not about all. If you can change the way I think about my problem, 
If you can do that two or three times in a meeting. So one of the things that we have is called insightful questions. And so in a discovery meeting, one of the KPIs for people we work with is I want a customer to say, that's a good question. I haven't thought about it. If you can do that two or three times in a discovery call, you've changed the way they think about their problem and you're going to be the leader for that moment with them. Mm -hmm. You can do that over a period of time then they're going to be more likely wanting to buy from you because you're adding value in their life. Often, some of the clients we have will get maybe a half-hour meeting with a CIO, CFO, CEO, whatever that is. We do two things when we mentor people on these meetings. The first one is the question is, how do I make the 30 minutes go to 35? So how do I eat into the next bit of time, right? And secondly, how do I get to a stage that after 30 minutes, they want to see me again? And they say, hey, what do we need to do next? Because I've, if I can change the way you think about the problem two or three times, I had a meeting with a VP of a, an IT company last week. Uh, we met for about an hour. We had a chat about a whole variety of things. And my, my intention was not to talk about anything we did, which I succeeded. My intention was to change the way he thought about two or three really important things to him. So we spent a little bit of time talking about some of the challenges. And at the end of it, he said, wow, that's obvious to me, but I've never thought about it before. Like, now you say it. So in that particular example, we were talking about creating a survey. One of my clients created a survey some years ago called Will They Buy? Mm -hmm. So he's saying, so let's say I'm, I'm, I'm pitching to you, I'm, I'm talking to you about buying a particular problem. His biggest question wasn't, was the guy who won the, the workday. Biggest question wasn't, do I need to prove to you that I'm better than competition? Because invariably, they get down to final two or three. The biggest question was, can you sell internally? So we actually looked at the ability for the person who's an infrequent buyer, can they sell? And so we had questions in his survey like, do they have a picture? If he didn't have a picture on LinkedIn, he marked it down. If they had no text, he marked it down. If they were wrong disk profile, he marked it down. How long they'd been in the role, he marked it down. So there's a variety of things that he was looking for, little triggers to figure out, is this person, does this person have internal credibility to be able to get $150,000 worth approval on this project to go ahead? Yeah, that's interesting. And you're talking about, you know, sort of qualifying them before the meeting. This is one question that is sort of a burning question for me, right? Like if you mentioned last time that that you spoke to someone that, you know, went through 70 presentations and no one ended up buying and how do you, and now you're talking about, you know, having those meaningful conversations with people and really, you know, digging into their problems, but obviously you must know something about the organization to be able to have those conversations with them. So how long should people spend when they are researching the organization before having their discovery call? Because I know there's a bunch of, I've seen on LinkedIn, you know, three in three, right? So in three minutes, you should be able to find three trigger points that you should be able to have with your prospect. But there should be a lot of work that goes, I mean, I assume there should be a lot of work that goes in the back end to be able to have those sorts of, you know, powerful conversations with these prospects to actually get them to say, what next? How do we get, how do we get more time or, you know, extend the conversation? So, you know, what are your thoughts around how much work should actually go into finding out more about the customer before you actually have that first discovery call? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. When you say research, what do you mean? <laughs> I wonder how many people on this call are listening going, research? I just turn, I've just got the best product ever, so I just turn up and show it to them and, and that's it, right? I'm stunned how little people spend actually doing research, right, and with people I get to talk to. It's like, yeah, I understand the product. I understand what we do. I understand our pitch, so I don't need to do much, too, too much. I probably spend about five minutes prior to every call figuring there's two or three things that I look for specifically. So I do want to get a good feel. And they're all things that I can research. So all the stuff I don't know around the ability for the organisation to sell, whether they're on target or not, they're all things I can't really find online. What I can know is all about their organisation, the industries they deal with, and a little bit about the, the individuals they're selling to. So whether it's a three and three you talk to, like I said, I probably spend somewhere between three and five minutes. I want to know specifically about the sort of role and individuals they are. So what I mean by that is if I look at your LinkedIn profile, I, I, I talk to this about aligning values and, and how do you build rapport with someone. If I look at your profile and you talk about transformation in the summary section on LinkedIn, 
then you better believe I'm going to have one or two questions about transformation. People talk about the things you want them to talk to invariably. Mm-hmm. So what are the things that they're proud of in, this, in the thing? What are the things the, recommended, the recommendations talk to? And how do I spin that into some questions? The bulk of the insightful questions are really going to come, there's three rules for an insightful question. It's got to be context sensitive. So it's got to be in the, it's got to be in the context of what they do. They've got to admit pain because if you haven't admitted pain, I could, I could talk to you all day about your pipeline. If I haven't earned trust from you, you're not going to tell me really whether you're on track or not in terms of your number or your pipeline or anything like that. And the third one is it's got to get a responsive, that's a good question, I haven't thought about that. All of those questions are kind of in my armory. I'm not going to go in pre-armed with, I'm going to ask you five questions about your proposals. If proposal is something that you're really concerned about, how do we solve the proposal problem with our organisation, then I'm going to have those questions ready. If it's more I've got a problem with discovery or I've got a problem with the close or I've got a problem, most people have a problem with really long sales cycles. And so I'll go armed with three or four ideas, questions, thoughts about really long sales cycles for a meeting. And that's interesting because it, it just by you explaining what, what sort of things you look for, in, in my opinion, that really just sets you up for success, whereas some other sales reps and BDRs, when they go in, they ask a lot of you know those base situational questions. So tell me about your job. How many people do you have working for you? It's like you should have already found all of this out by the time you got on that call, and it's crazy. I mean, I've even been in discovery calls with people trying to sell me their software, and they just start asking me bare basic questions. I even had someone asking, you know, so what, what does your company sell? You had at least like three days before we booked in this meeting to check that out. So is there any way that you can advise people? What are the fundamental things they should know before going into a sales call? If you're going to take my dare on and not talk about your product, the challenge with talking about product, let me tell you about why, a little bit about why I did it. It becomes a crutch. Your product is a crutch in a sales call, right? When there's that blank time in a meeting, it's that stuff that you fill all the blank time in with because you've done it 50 times, you understand the, the banter and you've gone through that process. What most people do is they use that to build rapport with a customer and then kind of use that as a mechanism to understand whether they've got a need or not. So when I, when I go into a meeting, I, I want to know around the sales team, I want to know if they've hired and fired. So I want to know some of the pain points that I'm going to call up and get some sort of an idea of what they've done to solve some of the pain points in their business. If I'm talking to a founder of a startup, I'm going to try and find out again on LinkedIn, there's a whole bunch of information. Have they got funding or not? That's a really big drive. Most people have got funding to either do development or increase the revenue. So I'm going to try and figure out on using something like Crunchbase, well, that's it. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and go in to a certain degree armed with where I think the conversation is going to go and then map some mental map, the, the meeting out for where I think it's going to happen. That meeting that I had last week with a VP of an IT company, I really had no idea where that conversation was going to go. We just got to a point where we started talking about that buyer's journey, the last mile, you know, sales cycles being really long, which is a really common thing. You know? What are the two biggest problems most founders are going to have? Getting pipeline and closing out deals. So, okay, here are some ideas around how I can solve both of those things. I'm going to be ready for that depending upon what he comes back and says. How did I finish the meeting? My objective was for him to say, hey, let's get some more time and go a little deeper on some of these things. He left the meeting saying, let's go and let's catch up next week or, you know, let's catch up soon. I think he said next week and have a lunch and talk some more about this. So, again, how do I add value at the different stages of the, of the cycles? Yeah, and you mentioned a really interesting thing at the beginning. You said when you're building rapport with a person, right? So how do you build rapport? Like, is this one of those things that, you know, you just have to be a born a charismatic salesperson or is there, you know, do's and don'ts, you know, do you notice a fishing poster in the background and start talking to me about fishing or, you know, what, what are some ways to build rapport with people? There's a guy called John D. Martini. I've done a little bit of work with and John D. Martini talks about values, but not honor, trust, integrity, values around. And he's got a, a, a questionnaire you get to fill in. So my highest value is work, my second value is family, and my third value is sport. You would possibly see some of that from my LinkedIn profile, some of the coaching I've done. 
the thing that I'm proudest of, reading. so you look towards the, the profile and the, the information that's in it or not in it. I would do some research on the organisation. I remember meeting a guy maybe 15 years ago and I said, maybe five minutes into the conversation, we talked a little bit about family and weekend and I said, hey, as exciting is the, is the takeover an ex- a good thing for you or not? He said, what do you mean? So I went to Google News, typed in the name and just popped up that in the US they'd just been taken over and he actually hadn't, hadn't uh, didn't have that bit of information. So building rapport typically is done with, in Martini terms, if you can understand what someone's values are and align with them, if you think about all your friends, all your friends have a similar set of values. If I met someone and they hated the sport that I follow or they weren't a family person, then that kind of eats into two of my really high values. So I'm more likely not to align with them quite quickly. Mm-hmm. If you can understand and drive someone's values. So I met, like I said, I met this, uh, the VP that I've talked about a couple of times. I rang two people before I met him and just found out, hey, what's he like? How does he process information? Is he a get-to-the-point person? Does he like to, you know, how does he communicate? So I can better figure out the things that I'm going to go through and do. Yeah, and that's a lot deeper than that you know, surface level, oh, you went to University of Technology, Sydney, me too, you know, we graduated in this year and trying to build rapport with people on crap they really don't care about. That's just listed on their LinkedIn. And when you're, so you mentioned you called someone to figure out how they operate, what they talk about, how they, how they process information. Do you analyze disk profiles as well when it comes to their LinkedIn? I know I use a plugin called Crystal Nose, and then that instantly analyzes the profile and it gives me recommendations on how to speak to them. Do you use something like that? And if you do, how important do you think that is? I think um, that's a great tool. I've seen it used very effectively. I've seen it in a lot of businesses that don't use it as well, which is quite interesting. I think understanding if you're talking to a buyer and let's say finance, right? A lot of finance people are into detail. Some aren't, but a lot of finance are into detail, which is kind of part of their role. So if you knew someone was into detail or not, you'd either give them a high-level pitch or you give them a detail conversation around the sort of stuff they want. I remember years ago talking to someone massively into detail, and I'm more at high level. So my natural is at high level than the detail piece. I said, he asked me three questions about some report writing capability. I said, let me send you the manuals. So you've got every answer. You There was three large A4, you know, arch lever files of, of this thing. And I'd sent all those things to him and he couldn't ask me any more report writing questions. So understanding how someone processes information, understanding what they do, I think it's vitally important. If you're going up, not doing any present, not doing any homework, going and doing the same presentation, time in, time out, that's when you get ghosted. That's when you nodding add value. That's when, you know, how do you speed the sales cycle up? Understand the customer. It's super, super simple. I, we might have had this chat the other day. I talked to a VP about 18 months ago, and he says, JD, what's interesting is the sales cycle is quick in the end, the beginning, and it slows down at the end. I thought about that. And we, we then had another conversation a couple of weeks later. It's quick in the beginning because it's all about us. It's our discovery, our demo, our presentation, our proposal. It's quick in the beginning because we're making it quick. It doesn't slow down at the end. It was always slow. Um, I remember talking to a guy maybe six years ago selling diversity and inclusion software. And he said, Qantas took two and a half years to buy. How do I speed that up? It's an interesting question, right? Qantas took two and a half years to buy. So don't forecast it for two years. You're forecasting something that's just not going to get internally approved, right? Because someone likes your product and likes the price doesn't mean they're going to buy of course. Too many pipelines out there in startup land are full of organisations who like us, but they don't need us. You know, I sometimes talk about intensive care. You need to talk to someone who's got a massive problem that you can solve, not someone who likes your stuff. Mm. If they've got a massive problem, they're more likely to make a buying decision. You want more people who are going to make buying decisions than, like I said, like your stuff. And let me take this to other people in the organisation. There's a variety of things that I hear in deal reviews and they're just, they're a bit of a yawn for me. It's like, I don't care that people like your, I don't care that the that people really like your software. What I care about is they've got a massive problem and we've got an opportunity to sell it, to solve it. And when, 
I mean, organizations could be huge beasts with, you know, thousands of employees and the organization itself could be facing a problem, but you may not be speaking to the person who's physically feeling the problem. So how do you identify very quickly whether the person that you're speaking to is the one that's going to be, you know, your champion that's willing to drive the deal forward, or if they're just one of those people that are, you know, a supporter and say, hey, I love the product, but they're probably the more dangerous ones where you sit there wasting a bunch of time and they actually don't have the authority to move anything forward. So, so how do you actually weed out one from the other or how do you know who to reach out to? The, it's a really interesting question you ask. One of the things that we see often is if we're selling to a cost center, this could be the most important thing they've seen this month, this year, right? It's going to solve a whole bunch of problems for them. The challenge is, is that problem universally acknowledged that it's a problem that needs to be solved, right? So part A is this is probably an important, for everyone you've done a proposal for, someone said to you, and I'll, I'll get to asking for proposals in a second, someone said to you, can you send me a proposal? And you've said, sure, and you've put your details down and you sent it across. Have you ever said to someone, I think I know I've asked you this before, thank you for asking me for a proposal, what exactly do you need in it in order to get this across the line? Mm. Have you actually asked someone, what does that process look like? The bulk of people that we have a conversation with that are an infrequent buyer, they invariably don't know all the internal mechanics to sell the thing. So the question is, how do we either align them with someone? Like I said, have you bought something like this before? Do you know someone who might mentor you on what that process looks like. So how do you add value or get them thinking about getting the, the project put through the business? Sometimes with some clients, I talk about solar panels. I, I, we went and had a look at solar panels 12 years ago and we did a reno. And the solar panels at the time were going to cost $20,000. It's really different today. They were going to cost something like about $20,000. And at the time, we were just cutting checks all the time for more and more things. So the, our bank account was going down super quick and we just had to make a decision around whether it was worthwhile to go with the panels or not. We decided not to do it because we just, we, we just kind of ran out of money like most renos do. Fast forward six months and the decision was kind of still no, but while money was going out of our account, it was easier to validate or justify whether we spent the money or not, right, other than the resources. So go and find a massive project that supports what you do and see if you can tag on to someone's existing budget. Mm. Does that make sense? So this might look like the digital transformation. Go and find out. Let's find an existing project. If we can put our trailer on the back of that existing project, then maybe it's just an approval process, not a budget and approval process. And then if you've already got that project there, you'll be able to weed out who the right people are, whether they're working on the project and how to actually get, get in front of them. So the question is, how do I get the trailer attached to it? If I can attach to a bigger project, then a lot of my internal approvals should be sorted. I did spoke to a client recently that sells to the marketing function, and they asked me to do a win, a win review for them. So I rang this particular buyer up, and I said, how many people did it take to get the internal approvals for this deal? So the customer tells me there's four signatures on it. So there's four signatures on the documentation they got. There was 30 people that needed to sign off that it wasn't part of digital transformation. There was 26 more people that then needed to approve that the business case got approved. There's 40-odd people involved in the buying process, and we were talking to one, if not two, people into this business, and there's four signatures. Right? The thing that shocks most people is there's so many people involved in getting a deal across the line and it's dramatically changed. 20 years ago, when I was running an IT company, I had a sign, I had a $50,000 sign-off. Mm. Now that same organization has been, been bought and sold and bought. There's like five more people to get sign-offs for that same delegation of authority. It's mental. Buying is so much, Malad, and I'm going I'm to give away my age a little bit here. I remember someone in my first ever demo saying, should I buy a 20 megabyte hard drive or a 40 megabyte hard drive? <laughs> and I said to them, never fill up 20 megabytes, ever. <laughs> so if you go back 30 or 40 years, salespeople were the educators. If you wanted to learn about a product, you get a whole bunch of salespeople to come and, and talk to you because we didn't have the information that's available on the internet. Now all that information is available on the internet, right? There's all sorts of stats. 
57 to 69% of the buying cycle happens before someone reaches out to you. Mm-hmm. So if that's true, how do you add value to a deal? Because if it's in the first 50%, you've missed the point. All you're doing is validating what they already know. Right? That's the right. While, how do you add value to that piece? Mm. So it's, I guess the message I'd, I'd like to give to your audience is understand the customer, understand how to add value to them, really add value to them, and you'll get a lot stickier. You won't get ghosted nearly as much. There's three reasons why people ghost you, right? One of the main ones is they're embarrassed to tell you that they don't know the answer. I read somewhere the other day, it's if you can clearly highlight the pain and identify the pain for an organization, your champion will come running. They will present themselves to you. You don't need to hunt them down, which was really interesting. But look, I'm conscious of time. I'd really love to dive into this one last question that I have for you. I want to get your thoughts on how do you see the world of sales evolving? I mean, at the moment, a lot of companies are still following that predictable revenue model of, you know, first get your SDRs, then your AEs, then that moves into customer success. And, you know, you've got that whole cycle. Marketing is providing that air support for the salespeople. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. And just before I, I get your thoughts, I want to highlight that we did have conversations around those tools like Crystal Knows and content management systems and everything else. So do you see any automation coming in or how do you see the entire world of sales in the next 5, 10, 20 years? It's a really interesting question. As I said, it prompted me to, to ring a couple of people when I saw that this is something you're interested in talking to. There's no doubt that the incomes of salespeople are going up every year, right? I heard some mad numbers the other day. Someone had just got employed. In my mind, it was a $150,000 person on a 200K package. And when I, when I say that, there's layers of value. In fact, one of the posts that I was going to do, I alluded to before, is the amount of time discovery that you talk about the customer and you drill into the customer is commensurate with how much income you earn. So if you don't, if you talk about yourself you know, the whole time, you're probably down the low end of the scale. If you talk about the customer, critical event, access to funds, and those types of things in discovery, you're in higher end of the scale. I think that what's coming 20 years ago, there were some inside sales teams, but there's a proliferation of SDRs and inside sales teams. And there's some amazing work being done on how to get multi-channel, multi-channel touch within your organization, how to get in front of um, people using a whole variety of different mechanisms. With the price of salespeople going up, the average tenure is 15 months. I spoke to a VP chief of staff from a company maybe two years ago, he said 30% of their sales team, over 200 sellers, 30% of their sales team were on target. They made their forecast, but 30% of their sales team were on target. There's no doubt that there's going to be a whole bunch of automation happen to the simpler tasks, the simple sales. That's coming, right? We've already seen things like Amazon. There's Amazon for B2B now. Some of the simpler things are going to be completely automated using AI tools and and predictive things and a whole variety of of capabilities that are amazing out in the marketplace right now. What's going to happen is it's going to be, there's going to be, I think, more automation and salespeople are going to have to be adding value and they're going to be more constrained into the more complex opportunities where you need to have the conversations with, with customers but we're more likely to be mapping the last quadrant, the last 25% of a deal. So we're going to be get better at understanding that last 25% of an opportunity rather than what we have been doing, which is getting really clear on what's the features and functions and capability and the price. I think that's going to dramatically change. There's a really interesting movement currently with some of the marketing automation tools about whether they're being effective or not. It's like, is PowerPoint effective? PowerPoint is a really effective tool if you use it properly. (laughs) If you abuse it, make it a crutch and put everything on a slide and bore your customer to death, then no, it's not a great tool. I think automation tools are going to, you know, drive. I get, so one of my businesses that we run is the sales development function. I reckon I get somewhere between five and 10 invites a week to someone saying, hey, we can improve your lead gen. They obviously haven't done any, any research to know that I'm shareholder in a business that does that. So I think, I think there's automation, but there's automation in a clever sense to understand some of that simpler tasks to be taken away. These recommendation engines are just going mad in some of the really interesting ways they can not, you know, if you want to buy a pair of running shoes, you also need 
some shark fin extract because if you're running, it's not here's better socks or here's some sweatbands, but here's the other things because you're over 40. So it's more segmentation mm-hmm. and more ability to be able to deliver back to you what the, the other thing you need. So I think they're the they're the things that are going to evolve. What will remain true, I believe, is that salespeople who add value to organizations late in sales deals, that, that'll that'll continue to be there. And I'm really excited for that change. I agree with you on that because, and the reason why I'm excited for it is because as there's less need for salespeople to run the entire cycle because there's a lot more automation, there's going to be a bigger need for salespeople, as you said, that could add value. And that's going to make for much smarter salespeople. We're going to have intelligence go through the roof. And I think that that's when that sort of icky stain on the salesperson's name is going to start being removed and it's not going to be seen as a used car salesman. They're actually going to see, be seen as intelligent individuals that can actually help people buy what is going to benefit their organization. JD, thank you so much for jumping on. We just hit 60 minutes. I could keep talking to you for another hour, uh, but we're going to have to cut it here. Just before we go, can you let us know where people can find you if they want to get in touch with yourself or Sales Director Central? Just where can we find you? And I will add it in the notes as well. Sure, sure. So on um, on LinkedIn, I post three times a week on sales acceleration concepts. I've done that for a bit over three years. My URL on LinkedIn is JD the Catalyst with a K. John Dean is my actual name, and be, you'll see that JD on on LinkedIn, and you can see a whole bunch of recommendations on my profile. One of the other things, if they if they did want to understand a little bit more about what we did from a startup perspective, we're doing a presentation to talk to startups and scale-ups about how to grow and scale their revenue based on a whole bunch of case studies. If that was of interest, then we're running a workshop on the 26th of May at 11 o'clock. And everyone listening to the call is is welcome to come along and hear us just go through about how we do what we do and the outcomes we've been able to achieve for organisations. That'll be phenomenal. Share that link with me. I'll add that in the notes as well, and I'll share it around LinkedIn. I think that's going to add some awesome value to people, and I'll definitely see if I can come along as well. I'm really keen to hear what you have to say. Perfect. Okay. Mate, thank you so much. Until next time, uh, wishing you all the best, and I'll chat to you soon. Cheers. Good selling. <laughs>